This episode is brought to you by AARP. 18 years from tonight, Grant Gill will become a comedy legend when he totally kills it at his improv class's graduation performance. Knees will be slapped. Hilarity will ensue. That's why he's already keeping himself in shape and razor sharp today with wellness tips and tools from AARP to help make sure his health lives as long as he does. Because the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash healthy living. Article is an online-only furniture company. By eliminating the layers of traditional retail, Article is able to keep prices low and quality high. No showrooms, no salespeople, just savings. This is beautiful, well-made furniture. Scandinavian simplicity. Beautifully designed modern furniture. Article is serious about shipping. No matter how many items, every order is shipped at a flat rate of 49 bucks. That's good. Shipping and furniture can run you a lot of cash. Article has really great stuff. I recently was just buying some furniture from my house. I have a bunch of stuff from Article outside in my house. I got a bunch of, um, they have really good outdoor chairs that are really cool. They also have these really nice benches and they have really cool colors. Like the colors of the furniture, there were really good options. It was really hard to pick. We have some Article furniture in the office. We do. We have some uh, beautiful yellow chairs that are comfortable. They're great. Yeah. We have some great um, uh, like like lounge chairs toward the back of the office that are really comfortable. Yeah. Love Article we here. We love Article. Media. And if you need some help getting set up, Article has options for in-room delivery and for assembly assistance, which I always need. John needs it. I like putting together furniture sometimes. Got my uh, other things to do with my time. I like, I enjoy, I enjoy, uh, I enjoy some, um, some, some, some using my hands. You know, sometimes I think we got this epidemic of ADHD, but really what we do is have an epidemic of kids who want to use their hands to think. Use them to put together Not furniture from words. Articles. Not Articles. just their words, but their hands and their minds together. Articles offering our listeners $50 off their first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash cricket and the discount will be automatically applied to checkout. That's article.com slash cricket to get $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. Go get some furniture. The only thing you'll have to decide, like, do you want a beautiful navy blue chair? Do you want a beautiful persimmon pillow? Do you want a beautiful green bench? You know, these are the choices you'll face. End of ad. Welcome to this week's Crooked Conversation. This is Julissa Arce, one of your favorite Crooked Conversation hosts. You've tweeted at me. Well, maybe one or two people have tweeted at me saying that. So I'm just going to roll with it. This week, our guest is Hasmin Morales, who is a manager for the Center for Innovation and Community Impact at the Colburn School. She is a classically trained violinist and a mariachi player. And we are going to have this amazing conversation about people of color in orchestras and more specifically about women of color in orchestras and why it even matters to have this type of conversation where it can seem like there are so many other issues in the world, but why arts really matter and how it can impact our whole world. So I hope you enjoy. Hasmin, thank you so much for joining me on this Crooked Conversation. I'm super excited. I've been um, really fascinated to learn about your work and the kind of austere world of classical music uh, that sometimes feels like very inaccessible to a lot of people. So I've been really excited to have this conversation with you. So let's just start from let's just start from the beginning. You're a classically trained violinist and yep. you also play in a mariachi. Correct. And to some people those two worlds 
playing a mariachi and being a classical violinist might seem like worlds apart because people just think of mariachi and they think like, oh, mariachi loco. And like, that's all <laughs> they know. <laughs> mariachi. Totally. Um, so let's, let's just start there. Educate us on why being a classically trained violinist and playing in a mariachi maybe aren't so different. Sure. Um, So to me, mariachi is a classical tradition. There are traditions from all over the world that we revere and um, maybe people in the West don't really see as classical, but as a a trained ethnomusicologist, I'm able to appreciate the classicality of these traditions, mariachi included. Um, So... It actually, I actually, this point of view comes from my dad, who was a conservatory-trained classical guitarist in Mexico and actually immigrated to the United States on a student visa to study classical guitar. And while he was studying at ASU classical music, he was scouted by a mariachi in L.A. And so he didn't actually begin learning or playing mariachi until he came to the U.S. Um, and he had, you know, graduated from his classical studies. And all of that informed how he approached learning this new genre, which was mariachi. And, um, you know, growing up uh, around professional mariachi, specifically, my dad was scouted by this mariachi called Sol de Mexico, which is comprised of, I mean, the highest level musicians throughout Mexico and the United States, really, who play this genre, um, it was it was natural to me. It was obvious that, you know, if, if I was born into this world where all the mariachis were proficient sight readers and arrangers and had this, these prolific musical backgrounds, it, it seemed obvious to me that, that, was, that that's how everyone else saw mariachi. Mm. And so it wasn't really until I started uh, performing and, you know, getting that other side of like, oh, people want me to play Mariachi Loco. And I'm just like, what? Why? Like, there <laughs> it is a so fun many, song. It, it is a fun <laughs> song. There are just so many better ones that are uh, more about, you know, virtuosity and technical mastery for the musicians that are just a lot more fun to play and mm-hmm. listen to. Yeah. Yeah. And so like what, I mean, obviously your dad having that classical background um, may have been like a big influence in you and wanting to be classically trained, but what were other aspects that drew you to that classical part of it given that and we'll we'll get into we'll get into this more later but there aren't a lot of women of color there aren't a lot of people who look like us who teach classical music who perform it who conduct it who compose it so what was it about you that you said I don't care that nobody looks like me I'm still gonna pursue this well I think it really came down to well my dad really wanted me to be classically trained first and I think now that I'm like sort of, uh, you know, reca- reliving this experience now that I'm working with young women of color, I really think a lot about how white supremacy influenced that decision for mm-hmm. my dad, that it was so important to him that I have a high level of classical technical mastery so that I would be respected and mm-hmm. I would be taken seriously as a musician. Um, mm-hmm. And so it was like I wasn't even allowed to play mariachi until I like reached a certain level of my classical training Um and then once I actually started hmm. playing mariachi, my classical teachers were like, what the hell is happening with your technique? Like, all of a sudden you have this new sound and like, I don't like it. Or like, hmm. you sound like, I don't like the way this mariachi uh, is affecting your bow hand or like your sound is too like aggressive. Hmm. Um, and so I was just like, what are you talking about? But like, some of this classical music, I mean, like it, when I listen to it, it's like. It sounds pretty aggressive to me. It's like boom, boom, you know. Totally. I mean, yeah, and like there, there, there is room for that technique also. But like in the classical world, it's such like a methodical approach to learning the music that if it's not exactly this way, it's just wrong. 
you know? Mm. And so then I started internalizing a lot of that and got to like where my dad was coming from in terms of like me wanting to be proficient at this so I could prove myself as a musician. And I also internalized that. Like I, uh, you know, wanted to prove myself and be seen as proficient and excellent in a lot of ways, whether that was classical or not. And I wasn't even really aware that it wasn't, that I wasn't, um, that there weren't people, more people who looked like me hmm. until I started playing in orchestras, like in late middle school, high school, when I was literally the only person of color or the only woman of color. Um, but you know, outside of that, it's really just like you by yourself in your practice room. And so until you start making music with other people like that, that reality didn't hit me until a little bit later. Hmm. Okay, um, yeah. I mean, what you're saying, like you're the you're the only person. I I uh, looked up at some of the stats, and uh, less than fifteen percent of all orchestra musicians are people of color, and within that, one point eight percent are black, and two point five percent are Hispanic slash Latinx. Correct. Uh, and that's not even looking at what percentage of those like terrible percentages are women of color. So the stats are pretty terrible. And to me, what's even more staggering is how little progress has been made over the years. So the, this this report that I read over a 12-year period from 2002 to the 2014, that 1.8% of black musicians hasn't moved right. at all. And for Latinos, it grew from 1.8% to 2.5%. And I was even a little bit dumbfounded to learn that um, the New York Phil had his first black musician in 1962 um, after existing for 133 years. And he actually quit because he was tired of being a symbol. He was like, I'm so tired of being like the only black musician. Um, so I was like, I'm curious to learn how many black musicians there are at the at the New York Phil now. There's one. <laughs> so there was one in 1962. And he quit because he was tired of being the only one. And it's 2018 and there's still just one. So why has there been such little progress in this world? So I think it's twofold. On one hand, it's systemic, right? Like there are there are systemic oppressions that prevent people of color from accessing consistent quality, high level music education, period. That's just unfortunately still the reality. Even programs that... You know, we have made a lot of progress, especially in the last decade since Gustavo Dudamel, who is like person of color at the front of the LA Phil, right? Like when he came, I think so many of us were like, wow, now everything's going to change. Mm -hmm. And there was one major change, which was that they began a program called YOLA, which is Youth Orchestra Los Angeles, which now serves like thousands of kids around the city, black and brown mostly. Um, and, you know, now we are coming into this generation of students who uh, of students of color who are all playing classical music, right? But the issue is that the approach of the program, it, it was like to serve as many students as possible, right? But not necessarily to serve them in depth or in a way that is equitable, say to like a, a, a they're one of their white peers whose parents can afford private lessons from, you know, them being three years old. Um, and, you know, all of the other like, nice instruments, money for festivals, for travel, for competitions, for, you know, master classes, all of the above. And so um, once that sort of came into play, like we were thinking, okay, this is going to solve the problem, right? Like now all these black and brown kids play classical right, music. Like, like you great. create a pipeline. Exactly. Like this right. is a pipeline. Like we should have, you know, now there should be more black and brown kids in, you know, high level conservatories. 
But since the programs that are designed to serve them are just are, are more like social uh, innovation programs mm-hmm. and not necessarily like musical excellence programs, right. it's, we're not really seeing those results yet. Right. Like those programs aren't necessarily meant to like groom talent that is going to end up in the orchestra. It's exactly. more like um, we want more young people of color to be exposed to music. Right. Which is in and of itself like a great thing. It is definitely mm-hmm. a great thing. And it's, it's like I'm glad that that program exists, but it's not going to solve the diversity issue in orchestras, right? And so, of course, there are all of these systemic issues. And then on the other side of that, there's sort of like the cultural identity issue, right. which is essentially like you can't be what you don't know exists. Right. Or you can't, you know, you can't aspire to be something that right. it's just like you don't have no concept of. Yeah. It. Well, I was... Um and I want you to tell us more about Fortissima, this fellowship that mm-hmm. you created for um, for women of, of color who show great promise mm-hmm. in becoming classical musicians. And I was I was listening to an NPR segment on on your fellowship, and one of the things that really s- stood out to me was one of the young girls in your program saying, "Well, sometimes I don't feel like I belong here, right? Like you walk into a room and you feel like I don't belong. I mean, I've I I've play the piano when I was like five years old so like I don't know much about like actually playing an instrument but even as someone who grew up like not being able to go to the orchestra right because it is a very expensive thing to go to it's a it's a can feel like very elitist space so even as someone later on when I grew up and I and I love music and so I loved going to the New York Phil when I when I lived there and listening to to classical music even for me I felt like I didn't belong there as totally. an as a spectator, as a, as a, yeah, like like as an audience member. I feel like I didn't belong there. So tell us about your program and how you're addressing some of these things. So Fortissima is um, a pilot program right now that I'm working on at the Colburn School that um, seeks to empower young women of color, specifically the other girls in the this cohort are all high school age. Um, so seeks to empower young women of color in classical music to essentially pursue professional arts careers um, because that's the other side of it. It's like even girls who do, you know, reach a point where they might go to a conservatory, like there, are, there is still so much that needs to happen in order for them to thrive. Um, right. And that really like... Um, we we actually went to Teen Vogue together as a group a couple weeks ago, and one of like my big takeaways from the conference was, um, you know, the, seeing all these women who were saying like, "I do this because I didn't have, I, this is what I needed growing up," hmm. and that's really what I what I think in the end prevented me from pursuing like a, a Juilliard degree or like a, a professional career in music is that I just didn't I didn't I was not empowered to pursue that I I you know just didn't have that. And so when I was thinking about like, okay, in the broad scheme of like, okay, the pipeline issue and this cultural identity thing, like what could I do that could address some of this? And so I conceived this program uh, Fortissima and basically we have this dual curriculum of artistic development and leadership development and they're both very like intertwined. And so we do things like our first session ever together, we took the Clifton Strengths Finder exam um, and did this whole workshop on how we use our personal strengths to approach a new piece of music or our practice habits or, you know, anything related to to their careers or you know last week we did a, a critical listening workshop at KUSC where we learned how to uh, listen to music and like make uh, an artistic critique about it that is intelligent and also thoughtful and you know all of those things that like you don't get in a normal music education right but are things that could help them 
eventually thrive. We also do like mindfulness and yoga and all of these, uh, you know, uh, basically self-actualization techniques mm. that help them uh, make art from a more authentic place and, you know, be more empowered to be in that space as right. the only woman of color. Yeah. So, like, I, I mean, I, I, a lot of what you a lot of what you're saying about um you know some of the like the systemic issues that exist and why um, why people of color don't feel empowered to take up space in these like very like elitist white uh, spaces and places. One of the, so I just watched uh, Green Book the the movie. I mean like whatever you think of it, and you know some people most people kind of hated the movie right because it's like this white saver um, like people feeling like that's what the message of the movie was about, and so. Putting aside what you think of the movie, uh, one of the things that really did uh, that was striking to me was this dynamic of the audience that classical musicians play for, right? So if you're a classical musician and you're a musician of color, and so you're one of the 1.8% of black musicians or 2.5% of Latino musicians, and the audience that you're playing for is still also a mostly white audience. And so I'm wondering what is that? what does that dynamic feel like of playing for an audience that perhaps are the very people who are creating the systematic oppressions and reasons why you can't play. It's actually a little bit vindicating or like just cathartic in a sense. It's like against all odds, here I am. And you're sitting there listening to me. Yeah. <laughs> and like, and you are consuming my art right now. So you're welcome. You paid for it and you're paying me. So there's that. Reparations. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, so maybe it's not as complicated as I, <laughs> as I thought it was. In my mind, I was like, "Oh my God, it's, it must be! It must be like tearing at their hearts. It must be like, you know, like oh my God, like because at, at least maybe you know maybe that's another that's another issue with this uh, Green Book movie. Maybe it wasn't really uh, it. Maybe it isn't that that." pulling and strings in your heart type of thing. Maybe. I actually didn't see the movie, but I can say for sure if like if I myself played in the LA Phil and you know I was thinking about like oh my white audience, I would also know that all my tias and my like all the raza would also be in the audience like <laughs> making a ruckus and so that you know th it's right. both. It's not just that I still play for a white audience like the presence of people of color on the stage means the presence of people of color in the audience. Yeah. And so there's that's, it's not just them. Yeah, you're right. I hadn't really um, thought about. It. I mean, you're being. I mean, you do bring, you do bring your community with you into that orchestra, totally. right? And you do bring your sound and your culture into that into that space. Yeah. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, I do think that the communities in which orchestras exist should be shaped by those communities in which they exist. Right. Um, that was actually one of the interesting things about this study that was done, which is that smaller orchestras tend to have more like almost double the amount of people of color in their orchestras. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of makes sense to me that if you're like in a smaller community and so it's like a more community based uh, environment that there might be more it might be more representative totally. of the community in which it comes from. Yeah. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Hasmin Morales after the break. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by Tommy John. I am so excited to read this ad. Listen up. Life is way too short to spend a single moment of it being uncomfortable. So when it comes to something you wear every day, like your underwear, why settle for anything less than Tommy John? Tommy John has the most comfortable underwear on the planet, keeping men neat and nestled and women panty-lined free. Both their men's and women's underwear sport a no-wedgie guarantee. 
Comfortable stay put waistbands and a range of fabrics that are luxuriously soft and designed to move with you, not against you. You don't need anything to be against you. That means there's no bunging and no riding up. Plus, Tommy John has a life-changing women's line, luxurious, hibernation-approved loungewear for men and women, and their latest innovation, the first-ever stay-tucked dress shirt for men. I'm going to have to get my, uh, my husband some of those. Tommy John is so confident in their underwear that if you don't love your first pair, you can get a full refund with their best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. So what you got to lose? Before you spend another dime on multi-pack underwear, remember, there's a better way to stay comfortable. Tommy John. No adjustments needed. Hurry to TommyJohn.com slash CrookedConvos now for 20% off your first order. That's TommyJohn.com slash CrookedConvos for 20% off. Only at TommyJohn.com. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by Quip. Starting a healthy routine and sticking to it are two very different things. Inevitably, we all skimp on that full night of sleep. Skip a workout or two or three or the whole week. My gym's already looking really slim. Or brush our teeth with a tired old toothbrush. We're not perfect, but we can do better. And Quip is a better electric toothbrush that can help. People brush too hard and some electric toothbrushes are too abrasive. Quip's built-in two-minute timer pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when it's time to switch sides and to help you clean your whole mouth evenly. Plus, there are no wires or a clunky charger, and it runs for three months on a single charge. That is my favorite feature. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5. A friendly reminder when it's time for a refresh and to stay committed to your oral health. Quip is one of the first electronic toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association. They're backed by over 25,000 dental professionals, and they have thousands of verified five-star reviews. That's why I love Quip, and why over one million happy, healthy mouths do too. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash crookedconvos right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash crooked combos. This episode is brought to you by AARP. 18 years from tonight, Grant Gill will become a comedy legend when he totally kills it at his improv class's graduation performance. Knees will be slapped. Hilarity will ensue. That's why he's already keeping himself in shape and razor sharp today with wellness tips and tools from AARP to help make sure his health lives as long as he does. Because the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash healthy living. The other thing that I wanted to ask you about was, um, I read this thing, so let me, let me pull this up. Out of 1,445 classical concerts around the globe, only 76 included works by a woman. So not only is it like the musicians are, you know, almost non-existent and the and the directors and even staff and the board, I mean, board of directors, it's something like 8% of board of directors of like major orchestras are people of color. Yep. Um, but so this really like stunned me, like 76 out of, you know, surely women have composed more music than that. So who are some of the... 
Who are some of the women of color composers that we should all learn about and listen to? Right now, my by far and away forever favorite woman of color composer is um, actually my dear friend, Rena Esmail. And she is an Indian American composer who, um, remember earlier when I was talking about cl- classical traditions that are not just Western classical, she her work is very much at the intersection of Indian classical music and Western classical music. And actually, they... Um, the Los Angeles Master Chorale just debuted her oratorio called This Love Between Us, which is um, an, orato- an oratorio that they presented with Bach's Magnificat, which is like a huge work and just so inspiring. But they were meant to be presented together. And so it was her whole concert, Bach's Magnificat and then Rina's uh, oratorio, which so she drew inspiration from the seven major religions of India and found basically all of the common threads between all of them. And it's called This Love Between Us. And it's really she wrote it in in the wake of the 2016 election and hmm. is just such a, a healing and necessary piece in our time that like I walked away from that concert actually with all of the Fortissima girls like in tears and, and just feeling so just inspired by her work and how like it can actually heal us as hmm. as a nation and like help me find common ground between me and like the person who was sitting next to me in the audience I'm I'm curious what did the what did the girls from the and I call them girls because they are like actually like young girls right I'm not calling like women girls Um, what like what was their impression of this like because I, I I imagine that for them it must also be very like intimidating or perhaps it's not but if it is intimidating for them to kind of like even go to some of these concerts or like be part of an orchestra, like a youth orchestra where they, they might be the only person of color there, um, what kind of impact does it have on them to see someone that looks like them be playing or or their music be be the, the, the works that are being played by like an all, you know, potentially white orchestra? Totally. I can say with confidence that of all of the work that I've done with the Fortissima program, that concert was by far the most... like the most actually empowering experience that we all had in Mm. the program like they're uh they've worked with rena like in workshops uh, in the past and so like they're friends you know like that's their that's someone who they see as their mentor and someone who cares about them and their development and then to sit in disney hall i mean which is such a beautiful Mm -hmm. space like just being in there like gives you a sense of something you know knowing that everything that we experienced from that stage was created by someone who looks like them. Like there are no words for that. I mean, even for me, I I think that was the first concert that I attended that was dedicated. That was, you know, that was music composed by a woman of color. And then to know that person and just to think like, wow, that is someone who actually has brown skin and black hair, Mm. like who uh, we have a shared with immigrant parents, Mm. you know, who share so much with us. Like I can do that too. Yeah. That's, that's the most important thing that we all walked away with yeah. from that concert uh, what are but what are some other like maybe programs that that are trying to help solve this issue to have orchestras be more representatives of their communities well this is actually since the league of american orchestra study that you've been citing uh in 2016 yeah, i 2016. believe there's been a huge push from many foundations including the mellon foundation the james l knight foundation uh to just throw money at this issue (laughs) and um, 
one of the organizations that is providing the most leadership around that is an organization called Sphinx out of uh, Detroit. And they uh, began as a competition for black and Latino string players and have really grown um, to provide like a multitude of programs and initiatives, as well as just like leadership from their from Aaron Dworkin and uh, and his wife, Afa, who runs the organization. Um and are just really stewarding a lot of that money into initiatives like the National Alliance for Audition Support, which helps black and uh, Latino uh, musicians pay for travel for orchestra mm. auditions, which is a huge thing. Like some some students will audition like 20, 30 times before they land their first job. And like th- those are 20, 30 trips that you take every yeah. time. Um, or uh, they just got... Um, money from the James L. Knight Foundation to start a a program to diversify the administrative leadership of classical music organizations. Um, And I was actually just chosen for this cohort called the Sphinx. Thank you for the Sphinx Lead Fellowship. Um, And so they're actually really getting it from a lot of different angles, from like the audition pipeline. They also have like in-school programs where they're also teaching kids. Um, And then this like high-level competition and now on the administrative side, like thinking about the problem the problem from all of the different angles. So yeah. definitely Sphinx and all of the their initiatives are are making a big difference. That's great. Like you mean you mentioned like help with auditions and uh, like getting people to um, how like helping with their travel. Um, but I also read you know just like how nerve-wracking uh, auditions can be and how like a great musician can just like totally freeze when they're actually like in the room. Um, the other thing though was I was reading about this like blind auditions and how they've really helped like people of color and women have like doubled since like blind auditions became a thing. And at first I was like, oh, that's great. Like we are making real progress. And then I was like, but damn, we need like blind auditions. Like there is that much prejudice that only when you can't see who's playing, does it make sense? Like, what do you make of that? So this is such a layered issue. So blind auditions, yes, they are important. They help especially women. Um, But they're only blind to a certain point. Like the final round of an audition is not blind. So, and and the final rounds of auditions are probably what contribute the most to this issue. Because... Yeah, so maybe tell us more about like the audition process so like we better understand it. Yeah, so a position will open. There's a committee from the orchestra. Um, They, not everyone plays the same instrument as the one that's opened up, but... Uh, usually like the principal of the section unless it's a principal position that's open and so there's a screen you play behind the screen and there's basically like a clicker that all the musicians have and once they if enough people click the button you're out Hmm. Um, so you play a note out of tune you're out you're playing something with the wrong bowing you're out like there are so many reasons and uh, everyone plays the same thing so there are uh, like excerpts that everyone practices and they show up and play the exact same thing um Really, play, the the audition is about how similarly you, you can play to people who are already in the orchestra. Hmm. So it's not really like they're looking for a unique sound, unless it's like the concert master, which even then it's a little testy. But um, so it's about how how rigidly you can comply to what they already have in place. Hmm. Um, and then after several rounds, the super finals, whatever you, they take the screen away, and then it's like you play for the committee. Um, and I think that's when committees have the most power to say like, okay, everyone at this point plays pretty much exactly the same, right. like identical levels. What can, like now what, uh, what else is important to us aside from them playing exactly like us? You know, like hmm. what, what is our agenda as an orchestra? Like what are our values as an orchestra that can come into play at this moment when we're 
making a conscious decision about who we're letting in right um and you know that's usually when you're like oh that's a person that i know or like Mm. you know like that the 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 nepotism and racism like all come into play (laughs) at that point who makes up the committee when people are auditioning it depends but usually members of the orchestra okay so like other orchestra members yes yeah okay Mm -hmm. so it is sort of like a like a snowball effect right like if you did have more people of color and then they were on the committee not to say like oh I'm a person of color and if I see a person of color play like I'm gonna pick them but like it does just help with the whole issue of like diversity and like different perspectives etc right yeah because if they're making it to that level they're already awesome right and like audiences often don't know the difference it's like classical institutions hold so like tightly to this notion that like it has to be one specific way Mm-hmm. and anything else is wrong, right? Yeah. And so thinking about like, you know, what does an orchestra value beyond just that one thing is like infathomable to so many. It's just like, well, that's it. Like we're an orchestra. We only care about this thing, you know? So that's what makes it hard to move forward. Yeah. Well, it's funny, like you're saying, like uh, orchestras are so like closely held together. Like I, the LA Phil has 13 women out of a hundred musicians and they like refused to say how many were or, like give like a, a breakdown of those 13 women but I'm like I can just go to your website <laughs> and like and like look yeah. you know um, so just like I've been thinking about this like having this conversation and like this particular topic as as a conversation I, I you know I think a lot about just like I, mean, I think about this all the time, like, oh, man, there's people who, like, don't have money to eat and, like, healthcare, and then, you know, we have a, a shutdown and, like, workers aren't getting paid. And so there, it can seem like there's just, like, a million other more important, and, like, this conversation can still can feel trivial. Like, we're talking about, you know, orchestra, something that, again, this can be, like, viewed as, like, a very elitist thing. Totally. So, like, why does it even matter in the context of, like, the large scheme of things? Well, because it's about art right it's like art and to me art is not trivial in the sense that it is necessary in order for all those other things to matter like Mm. I don't even care about like necessarily being alive if I can't like express myself right or you have like a creative experience as a human like that's also like a like a basic human need and um like I was saying earlier about Rena's piece about this love between us like music has the power to heal and to you know open people's minds and hearts which is like right now if at any point in human history it were urgently necessary this would be it like this is a moment that we need something that can bring us together because we are just so highly divided that nothing like you know makes sense yeah no i i totally agree And, and this this um New York Times article that I read on on Sanford Allen, the first uh, black violinist uh, at the New York Phil, he didn't, like when he quit, he didn't blame the New York Phil. He wasn't like, it's their problem. He really talked about it in the context of this is part of a bigger national social issue, right? And so I think that um, in just like any other area of our life and our culture that we look at where there isn't representation, like we should care that there is representation in, in every area, in the arts, in, in business, in media. Um, because you're right, like it does it does matter. It matters um, not only not only because, oh, like we should have more people of color, but because of what that means to 
our communities. Totally. Um, so if people want to if people want to learn more about the program, if people want to go hear you play, but don't come expecting to hear Mariachi Loco. <laughs> <laughs> but where do they go? If they want to do that. Uh, you can visit colburnschool.edu to find out all about all of our exciting programs, as, including Fortissima. And uh, I play in Mariachi Las Colibri. So I think it's colibrient.com. Uh, follow us on Instagram for all of our cool performances coming up. Awesome. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I told you that was going to be a bomb conversation. I am really thankful uh, not only that Hasmin took the time to come in studio and have this really interesting conversation and sharing so much of her passion and her work. Um, she's also a dear friend of mine, so I am super excited that we were able to do this. Stay tuned for more Cricket Conversations. Make sure to subscribe, rate us, leave us a review. Tell your friends, tell your family about Cricket Conversations. And you can find me at Julissa Arce on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Till next time, stay hopeful.